So when you see a veteran walking tall down your street, someone who's experienced it, that's a living testimony to things that no longer exist. Living memorials to friends who have died, right? And that veteran is holding it in their hearts. They're holding in their minds. They're holding it in their bodies and their brains. And they don't want to let that go. They don't want to let that memory go. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thank you for tuning into this very special Veterans Day edition of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. For those of you finding the show for the first time, the Daily Helping's mission is to help you become the best version of yourself to make the world a better place. This past summer, I was asked if I would produce an episode with a particular emphasis on combat veterans and post-traumatic stress disorder to help raise awareness in the general public about this issue. Whether you know someone who personally served in the military or not, PTSD is an issue that impacts nearly 25 million people alone in the United States, or roughly the population of the entire state of Texas. Recent studies also suggest that women are twice as likely to suffer from this disorder as men. In today's episode, we're going to hear from two outstanding guests. The first is going to take us through PTSD from the standpoint of diagnosis and treatment, while the second will share his very powerful and personal story of his own battle with post-traumatic stress after his time serving in the Middle East and what he's doing today to help other veterans battling this disorder. Lastly, we have some outstanding organizations who need your help to continue the great work they are doing to help veterans, and we'll share those at the end of the show so you can help make a difference in the lives of those who are impacted by PTSD. And now, I'm proud to introduce today's first guest, Dr. William B. Lawson. Dr. Lawson is a professor of psychiatry at the Dell Medical School at the University of Texas in Austin. He is also the professor of psychology at Houston Tillotson University and the director of health disparities policy and research at Austin Travis County Integral Care. He received his PhD from the University of New Hampshire and his MD from the Pritzker School of Medicine at the University of Chicago. Dr. Lawson completed his residency at Stanford University and a fellowship at the National Institute of Mental Health. He has had multiple academic and leadership positions, including Chief of Behavioral Health and Medical Director in both state and federal positions. Dr. Lawson received the 2014 Solomon Carter Fuller Award by the American Psychiatric Association and the 2017 George Winokur Clinical Research Award from the American Academy of Clinical Psychiatrists. He has over 200 publications and is the editor of the Journal of the National Medical Association. Dr. Lawson, thank you so much for coming on this very special episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. Thank you. So I wanted to begin and really have you explain 
to everybody what PTSD is. A lot of people, maybe they've seen it or heard the term on a movie, but they don't really know from a clinical standpoint, of course, what is post-traumatic stress disorder. So walk us through what it is, how people can get it, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, the basic idea is that we've known for a long time that people that are all exposed to overwhelming or life-threatening stress um, that they can um, strong symptoms that aren't just anxiety, but more than that. Uh, and not only do these symptoms uh, are disruptive, but they're also persisting. So when the person is exposed to an extremely traumatic experience, they don't just forget about it and walk away. They continue to re-experience it and can um, go on months and sometimes um, years. Um, what we now recognize is that it's not just uh, folks get anxious. They also see the world in a different way. They um, begin to have disturbances in terms of sleep, wakefulness, how they relate to others. And also, they begin to um, to have feelings of uh, in the body of um, being uh, autonomic reactivity. The nine events tend to um, be stressful and also that um, they're just not as reactive to extremely stressful events as they once were. So you've talked about you know, that this is precipitated by exposure to a traumatic event. So, you know, obviously somebody who's been in a hurricane or somebody who's been shot at, that would certainly count. What are some other type of experiences that could cause post-traumatic stress disorder? That's where we get the um, sometimes disagreement about whether or not the experience is true, quote, post-traumatic stress disorder. We recognize that being that um, a life-threatening event, I mean, most of us will agree, um, is that kind of experience. And also uh, such life-threatening event to um, friends or family, that you may be aware of such an event and that it may be, um, uh, have some relevance to you. Um, I guess some agree disagreement about, of course, is that to what extent do people judge events as being life-threatening uh, rather than more benign. I see. That makes quite a bit of sense. And you also had mentioned that as a result of the trauma, people see the world in a different way. Could you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that? Things that aren't particularly threatening now become threatening. Experiences, places that maybe um, remind them of the stressful events may um, bring about a full force um, re-experiencing of what happened when they had the traumatic event in the first place. On the other hand, things that um, make other people anxious or nervous, um, the person with PTSD may get an emotional numbing. They just don't don't react like they once did. Things are tamped, it's almost tapered down. And so we have both... uh, a hyper-responsiveness to um, not necessarily uh, traumatic experiences, but a numbing down or a tempering to um, normally, um, mostly striking events. It's interesting because you're essentially talking about radical changes in the way an individual perceives certain stimuli. And I'm wondering if you could expand on what happens in the brain that actually makes those changes? 
That's an excellent question. We now appreciate the fact the original study did find um, some changes in the brain that was attributed to the fact that many of the folks had turned to um, alcohol and other drugs to try to deal with these symptoms. But then I pretty much recognized that the um, persistent changes in such structures as the um, hippocampus, uh, which is involved in terms of um, short-term uh, memory, as well as um, some changes in the amygdala. Uh, which is involved in the emotional reactivity. Um, by far, the biggest finding, of course, is the, the big um, is that the hippocampus tends to shrink. People tend to parallel uh, difficulty to remove memories of a stressful event. Uh, in addition, there are a number of biochemical changes. Um, there's uh, uh, changes in terms. There's initially an uh, increase in cortisol levels. Um, later on, there's a, there's a, a reduction in um, the cortisol response, um, which makes it different from um, the kinds of uh, changes that we will see in depression. Um, basically, there are a number of changes in neurotransmitters in the brain. And, and certainly, that this, this all makes a lot of sense. And, and you know, when we're talking about emotional reactivity, that amygdala is right there as a central player in that. But talk to us about, you said that there are some changes either with hyperreactivity or a, a numbing, if you will, of one's reaction to certain stressors. So there we're talking about the autonomic nervous system and that fight or flight response that many people are familiar with. But talk to us a little bit about how that is impacted by exposure to trauma. Yeah, what now? Uh, the body then becomes um, hypersensitive to events. It's almost as a defense mechanism. Um, the person is put in what looks like a normal situation. Um, there may be car backfiring or dog coming out of the corner of the side, and the person's response is to feel as if um, they're being um, besieged um, by um, uh, uh, something that is uh, um, a threat to their lives and react accordingly. So the result is that the person is on the almost a constant barrage of having benign or normal life experiences um, essentially um, 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 activating the uh, autonomic nervous system, especially the uh, sympathetic nervous system, um, which is associated with more flight <laughs> and fight. Indeed. And, of course, when we're talking about fight or flight, this certainly makes a lot of sense in the context of our soldiers who are in wartime situations. But PTSD can look differently for different populations. Talk to us about what specific things that, that you've seen in PTSD for those individuals who have been exposed to war trauma. In uh, early days, um, we thought that um, this was very much specific to um, exposure to war trauma. And then in recent years, uh, we found that um, people, uh, children who were abused, uh, women who were raped, um, had very, very, very similar symptoms. And uh, when we developed diagnostic criteria, it included those symptoms. Um, one of the uh, findings has been, and consistently, that um, the um, kind of PTSD that's seen in wartime tends to be more treatment-resistant, more persistent, um, there's much more of the autonomic um, overdrive than we see in other kinds of, of PTSD. And as the quality of the different 
We don't know because um, civilians simply aren't exposed to the kind of situation that occurs in terms of wartime. Perhaps some gang members and others may have suspicions, but the combat veteran um, comes out with persistent symptoms, sometimes uh, uh, neuropsychological um, changes, um, as well as um, a, a lesser responsiveness to the usual um, medications that we use to treat PTSD. So it's interesting because you, on one hand, there is a very specific set of diagnostic criteria that medical professionals use to assess PTSD and treatment protocols for dealing with it. And yet you're, you're saying that those who are exposed to war trauma, such as soldiers, their PTSD is much more resistant to treatment than those we see in civilian populations. We're resistant to treat as much more of an arousal component, um, also some, sometimes a persecutory component. We just don't um, see it in the same way in folks who are exposed to these kinds of events in the, com- in the community. And again, we don't know if it's because um, it's something quality or different or if, in fact, someone in the community was exposed chronically to the kinds of ongoing day-to-day um, persistent stressor that occurs in an individual in a combat situation who is in constant, even though they themselves may not be shot at, are always under awareness um, that that could happen to them. So how large is this problem in terms of treating combat veterans with PTSD? Is the system in place equipped to handle it? And obviously, when uh, the resources are there, uh, some systems, it can. Um, but unfortunately, even though the, the um, veteran system probably is more of a egalitarian, less cost-dependent um, system, and much, you know, much more integrated system than our overall healthcare system, it probably has some... Uh, there probably needs to be more that um, that needs to be done to address the disease state. Uh, so um, the system itself sometimes has resources, and sometimes, depending on the uh, vision and other places, the um, resources simply uh, may not be there. Again, this is, a, this is a very, very chronic, difficult problem that many systems simply do not manage well at all. Now, I know that we've had pretty significant advances in a lot of ways with respect to technology and how that is informing new types of treatment for a variety of diseases and disorders such as PTSD. But could you talk to us specifically about what new treatments are on the horizon that you have seen which give you hope that we can start getting a handle on some of this stuff? I think the good news is that many of the existing treatments um, may work for some people. The problem is we've got to make it uh, so that they work for a lot of people. The problem is we've got to make sure that it addresses that you, I won't say it's a unique, but that ongoing problem that the veterans face, and that is that uh, the symptoms tend to be more persisting. Uh, the, the intensity can go on for years and years, whereas among civilians, they may fall off um, very, very quickly. So 
first um, SSRI drugs came out for PTSD that were effective. Unfortunately, uh, when you look closely at the data, what we found is that it did very well for um, women who were victims of rape, but did lousy in terms of combat veterans. So there's, uh, there's, there are several uh, agents that are coming out now that seem to have improved improved the outcome. Uh, it remains to be seen whether or not they'll be equally as effective in, um, in combat veterans um, because they unfortunately nowadays aren't necessarily included in those trials as they uh, once were. Also, uh, exposure therapy has been shown to be effective, and we're now refining and improving um, the capacity to have exposure therapy um, to be effective. Now, and using internet um, procedures, we're now um, combining with various kinds of manual techniques to uh, to, to be uh, that activate the vestibular system to um, be able to improve outcomes. And there is some evidence that um, um, such um, uh, approaches as transmagnetic stimulation may be effective in combat veterans as well. Some folks that strongly believe that um, cannabinoids, marijuana, and others may have some benefit for listeners to recognize that there's over 100 different metabolites related to uh, cannabinoids. And what we're uh, finding is that um, not all of them are effective. There are some that may have um, some medicinal effect. That I think we need further results to be able to um, clarify their role. So it is encouraging that there is some evidence that the treatments, new and old, can work. But it's simply, as you said, a, a matter of allocating the appropriate resources, which can be a problem. And the other problem I just want to mention is that um, there are also some unique problems in terms of um, the African-American and sometimes the Latino veteran. Um, as in other systems, um, African-Americans tend to um, have less likely to gain access to the newest, most effective treatment. Also, um, misdiagnosis is much more common among African-Americans um, than among other groups. So folks may be responsive, but they may be getting the wrong treatment um, for that person um, because they've gotten the wrong diagnosis or were diagnosed late. PTSD, like anything else, responds better when the diagnosis is early and treatment is intensive um, initially. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you. And I can't wait to see where you'll go. That makes a lot of sense. And, and I wanted to also ask you a question uh, for those that are listening but don't know. PTSD is diagnosed using the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, 5th edition, which essentially is the guidebook that psychology and psychiatry use 
to to make these diagnoses based on diagnostic criteria. And the diagnostic criteria themselves have changed for PTSD in the last several years between the revisions of the fourth and fifth edition of the DSM. I'm wondering, Dr. Lawson, if you could speak to what those changes are and if you feel that those changes have been beneficial to veterans or have worsened the situation in terms of diagnostics. First of all, let me just note that um, diagnosis in psychiatry is limited by the fact that we do not have a blood test for most of the psychiatric illnesses. Not to say that there isn't some biological, um, genetic, and other basis for these. It's that at the present time, where our technology is, we don't have a blood test. So what do we do? We have to depend on verbal report and observation in terms of what is happening to the person. Um, before uh, initially, um, PTSD was diagnosed pretty broadly. The main point about the DSM five is that it um, removed um, some of the um, bases for what was considered a traumatic event or what was considered a life-threatening event. I mean, it's much more that it really had to be these. Not to say that the other uh, other cases can't cause PTSD-like symptoms. But when we look at large populations, that's what we, um, that's what we find. And it's a problem because um, there, there have been clinical reports of individuals who literally stepped on the ground in Vietnam, no shooting shots, nothing, and developed persistent symptoms. But they would not admit um, modern-day um, criterion for PTSD. There's also a shift more in terms of... Um, um, some of the other um, uh, criteria that uh, used to be required, uh, no longer required, but the bottom line is that the trend now is towards um, a much more restricted diagnose, diagnostic criterion for PTSD based on uh, strong evidence that the event is, in fact, life-threatening traumatic. Do you feel that these changes have been helpful or more prohibitive in veterans getting the help that they need? I think they're more um, more prohibitive. Again, those of us who were clinically have seen that um, some of these symptoms that um, they no longer consider uh, life-threatening are in um, the veteran. I mean, in fact, um, very much have felt they were life-threatening. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, when they, when they develop the criterion, which is again based on groups, it's based on people who have um, PTSD in the civilian population, and not as we used to be in the past on the kinds of experiences that the veterans have. What we know is that PTSD, even though the criterion talks about here and now, um, whether or not they're exposed to an event some months before, um, we know that um, a big risk factor is that whether or not folks have had um, negative experiences early in their life. We know that African Americans are much more likely who have had negative um, adverse events in their lives. And as a result, um, may require a less uh, stressful event uh, to precipitate um, full-fledged PTSD. So that's interesting. It, it almost sounds in, in that population that you're talking about with African-American veterans that because of the environment where they've been in previously, their threshold is lower for PTSD. Yeah. Plus the fact that, and often stated, African-Americans in combat situations 
are much more likely to be in, are much more likely to be in combat sessions, situations, much more likely to be in the front line. There was just a study just came out showing that uh, women veterans with PTSD, they didn't find any racial differences per se uh, when they controlled for exposure to combat situations. But when you didn't control for that, you found that the female veterans had more PTSD. Interesting. There's a difference in terms of what the person brings to the situation. That's extremely important. And um, socioeconomic status, um, previous exposure in terms of discriminatory behavior, all the uh, usual negative events that underlying um, poor self-worth and, and can overwhelm um, one's ability to cope. Um, Wall can be a, a foundation for developing PTSD, perhaps even in those individuals who do not meet the new DSM-5 criteria. So you did mention that there is a massive problem as well. This is one of the things you spoke about a few minutes ago, that there's a massive problem with misdiagnosis. Talk to us a little bit more about that issue and what can be done about it. One is the uh, failure to recognize that for African, sometimes for African-Americans, they may not, uh, for a variety of reasons, not reach the criterion as used by the DSM-5. Part of it has to do, as I mentioned, in terms of prior exposure. Also, um, African-Americans, we call it cultural reticence. We don't actually disclose everything um, when we um, encounter someone of a different racial or ethnic group in terms of our interpersonal lives. But then the other part is that PTSD symptoms can look very much like um, psychotic behavior and schizophrenia. And African-Americans are often overdiagnosed as having psychosis when they may, in fact, have PTSD. So they may never get the treatment for PTSD and may be treated uh, with the wrong medication, which be potentially disruptive to the individual's uh, recovery. Okay. Very, very good. Thank you so much for sharing that information. And we are close to time here. One of the things that I always do when I'm ending my episodes is I ask my guests their biggest helping, and that is the single piece of information that you'd like them to walk away with after hearing us talk today. But this is a little different because when this is kind of a two-interview episode and also because we're specifically talking about PTSD. So for those listening, what would be the biggest helping that you'd like to see in terms of change for the treatment of PTSD moving forward? What we need to do is to treat the individual's biopsychosocial needs not welded on uh, what led to where the person is, although that's important information, but deal with the person's needs as they are um, so that they can um, move toward a place of recovery. Outstanding. Dr. Lawson, where can people find out more information about you and what you do? I have a new website coming up, wlawsonmdphd.com. Also, you can uh, reach me at the Dell, www.dell.edu website as well. And family, um, um, I do respond to my email, wlawsonpsygmail.com. Outstanding. Dr. Lawson, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you. I'm truly honored to introduce our second guest. DeAndre B. Wells is the grandson of the legendary Michigan State University Hall of Fame track and field coach James E. Bibbs. DeAndre himself played Division II football at Northern Michigan University. 
During his time in the military, he served as a non-commissioned officer in the United States Army 5th Special Forces Group, where he completed three tours of combat duty during the global war on terrorism. He is the recipient of the Army Good Conduct Medal, Global War on Terrorism Expeditionary Medal, Global War on Terrorism Service Medal, National Defense Service Medal, and other awards as well. DeAndre is the founder and CEO of AGX Group. AGX is a premier provider of business support and integrative health management services, including PTSD intervention solutions. He has been featured in such publications as Franchising USA Magazine, The Baltimore Times, Military Times, and Veteran Business Services. DeAndre has also been recognized in the Baltimore Business Journal's 40 Under 40 as an honoree. DeAndre, thank you so much for participating in this very special episode. And and as you know, we just listened to Dr. Lawson talk quite a bit about what PTSD is, different parts of the brain that it impacts. But I'm grateful that you were able to come on this episode because you can talk about how PTSD has impacted you personally as a veteran. And then we'll also talk about what things you're doing to help other veterans. So if you would, take us back and, and, and tell us your story about your time in the military, and, and we'll begin there. Sure. Thank you, uh, Dr. Schuster. I'm excited to be on. I'm honored and privileged. Thank you for um, hosting this show. Thank you for what you're doing, and thank you for giving us the opportunity. So I joined the Army in 2000 after coming out of college. I played college ball up north at Northern Michigan University. Telling people I was ill prepared for life. And so I decided to join the military. I was walking on the street and I walked into the recruiting office and I said, Hey, you know, what should I do? <laughs> and so I joined the military as an 09 Bravo, which was an unspecified MOS. Um, and then from there, um, I was able to kind of graft into what I wanted to be. Um, I went to um, uh, basic training at Fort Leonard Wood, uh, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Um, and this is where, uh, from there, I did AIT training in Virginia. Um, and from AIT training, I went to Airborne School in, in, in Georgia, um, and then Air Assault School. And then from those particular schools, I was stationed um, at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, with the Fifth Special Forces Group. So I tell people I didn't join the Army, really, to you know, be on the front lines. And, and you know, I really joined the Army at that time because I wanted to readjust my life. And, and, you know, I thought that the army was the best place to do it. And so it was, and I joined this unit and these were some, some solid men, green berets who were to the core and all that they did. And I had the best time in my life and some of the worst times in my life. I spent from 2000 to 2005, four years, my whole active uh, time in the military was um, in the Middle East, uh, from Jordan to Iraq, Najaf, uh, Baghdad, we were there constantly um, under fire. So it was, it was, it was hell. I came out in 2004 after my last tour with this special forces group. We were in Najaf, Iraq, living in the house, living in the city of Najaf, five clicks from the mosque that the Prophet Muhammad supposedly grew up out of. And so you can imagine the the pressure and the and and um, the hell we experienced by being in that environment. We were behind, the house that we lived in was behind a college, a university in Najaf. Um, and so we befriended the university president and he was able to give us 
um, this large space for us uh, to live in. And um, it was a unique experience at that time. There were only 12 of us. And I came on the team after their captain was, was shot and killed, Captain uh, Tarvlosky. Um, he was the commander. ODA 525 was the unit. And uh, he lost his life. And, and that's when I came in to be a part of the team as an extra body. And as an extra body, it was my responsibility to pick up kind of what, you know, he left off, even though another commander did come in and take the place. Um, but an extra body is an extra body, whether you're a machine gunner or, you know, you're interviewing captives or you're, you're interviewing uh, locals. Um, you know, that's what I did. Um, we hired, interviewed and local, locals to guard our camp. Come to find out these guys were raping the locals, locals, college students, you know, so. It was, it was, it was crazy, man. It was crazy. <laughs> so DeAndre, you're, you're over there with your unit. You were pretty close to enemy lines. And was there any one event that you can think to that might have caused your PTSD or, or was it, do you think just a cumulative effect of being over there in your multiple tours and constantly exposed to stress or both? Um, yeah, I would say both, um, m- more so the latter, you know, the constant drilling of, you know, the trauma or the, the idea of trauma, the notion that any moment, you know, you could die. Um, the sound of a mortar round hitting concrete is the worst sound ever. You know, the sound of, you know, AK-47s being shot over your head. Um, these were a constant drilling. And for four years, this is what we've experienced. Um, the one experience that really shook me was uh, our commander one day. So again, mind you, we're living in a house, you know, civilian clothes. We're watching movies at this time, right? He comes in and he says, look, there's news that there are about 3,000 men marching toward the house to the mosque. They're headed to the mosque. He said, get to the top of the roof and make sure that you take out those who have weapons and those who are, uh, of course, proven to be someone who was aggressive. And so that moment alone for me, man, I had the, I had my first out of body experience. I get to the top of the house and I see nothing but infrareds flying over my head, nothing but loud men shouting. Now, mind you, there's only a few of us in this house. So I had no idea of what the end result would be. And I literally felt my body leave, leave my body. And I could see myself my life slowing down. Everything slowed down. And all I remember was the Air Force showing up. <laughs> and and that was it. And after that moment, I, I, I was never the same. I was never the same. What you described, DeAndre, is something that a lot of people who are exposed to trauma do experience. And that is, a, it's referred to as a dissociative state where essentially, you know, there are missing pieces of time. People feel like they're out of their bodies, as you described. So very common for diagnostically. Do you recall when you found out from your squad mates what happened in that house or during that incident when uh, you didn't have those pieces of memory yourself? Well, yeah, the Air Force came in and, you know, they, they provided air support. But after that moment, the next morning was the next morning, and that's when we assessed the damage, and uh, that's when things became to, you know, start to come back to me as far as what happened and the carnage that was around and the experience of it. And again, even to this day, as I talk about, the pieces still come back. And that's the interesting thing about trauma is that it, it literally reshapes 
um, your body, your brain, you know, your capacity for pleasure and engagement and self-control and trust. And so, you know, I tell people this is a full body experience and um, you can't detach it from um, everyday life. And, you know, some people 16 years later, this is the war. And yet, you know, this is still a up and coming topic. Right. It's still fresh on the minds of our society. And I think that's firmly due to the language being everywhere and it being romanticized. Right. And, you know, it's in our pop culture, it's in movies and TV scripts it's in news and public policy discussion. But yet still the real issue of trauma and PTSD is lived out in the individual and the body of that individual. And I live that out every day. I live out that that statement of him saying three thousand men going up top, seeing it. And thinking, okay, what the hell am I going to do? Excuse my French, you know. Because, again, I'm, I'm with these Green Berets, and I just so happen to be in a so- support element with this team of guys. So this wasn't my MO, you know. And I had come out of a situation from childhood where I had experienced trauma. So that trauma had already been compounded. So at that moment, my whole life just came to, <laughs> came to an end, right? My body responded. Accordingly, and according to the trauma that I had experienced before, my body said, "Oh no, okay, we're going to escape this, or we're going to freeze," and that's what it did. My body froze. And Deandre, I want to thank you for being vulnerable and being willing to discuss this, so that everybody listening to this really gets an idea of what it is like to experience not only combat trauma, but there's some cumulative trauma that you described as well, and. One of the things that you've said a couple of times is that your life was never the same after that day. And I'm wondering if you're willing to talk to us a little bit in, in particular about what that meant for you, what that would look like. You know, trauma is a fact of life. You know, veterans and their families deal with the painful aftermath uh, of combat. One in five Americans, for example, have been molested. One in four grew up with alcoholics. One in three couples have engaged in some form of physical violence. And so when that's engulfed into your upbringing, when that's a part of your upbringing, you know, it's going to be a part of you for, for, for the rest of your life. The only way to really assess the traumatic uh, experiences is to relive them, if you will, in a safe environment. And so my wife who I've been who I've been married to for 13 years has been my rock. Um, she was uh, trained to be my caretaker after I was medically uh, retired from the military, diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, 100 uh, percent total. And so she came on board, and she was the one assisting me going through every step of the way, every day with the nightmares, the bouts of depression, uh, the moments of anxiety, the times when I'm forgetting things, and the times when I'm drinking and driving the times when I'm drinking before I go to work. And I'm, these are the things that my wife dealt with. She was on the front lines of this and I traumatized her. I traumatized her because of course, obviously trauma is relative. And that was her first time ever seeing something like that. You know, she came from a great background. Her family was phenomenal. And so here is this experience where I'm taking her through every day um, and it's it's disturbing to her ontological security. And so she's wondering where, what's going to happen the next day. You know, is this going to be the last time he takes a ride with alcohol? You know, is this going to be the last time he goes to work and 
you know, he takes a six pack with him, you know, what's going to happen. And so that's something she worried about every day. It got to a head where, you know, here I am making six figures in sales education, always looking for the dragon. We're chasing the dragon is what we call it because the rush that you get from these experiences in combat or the schools, we're always looking for it. Right. And so on a daily basis, that was my battle. I was getting up to find that rush, either to suppress the pain that I was dealing with or to find the rush. And in 2012, that's when it kind of came to a head for me. I was drinking on a daily basis. Again, the pressure of me dealing with my own trauma and my own fears and my own anxieties and having to be a husband and a father really got the best of me. I just couldn't handle it at the time because I wasn't well. You know, I tried to compartmentalize everything. I try to put my, my trauma here. I try to put my wife here and my kids here. Um, and then I couldn't juggle the law. And it eventually broke me down. One night after drinking heavily at a restaurant, I came home. My wife had taken the kids because she didn't feel safe. And I came home angry, upset at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning because they were gone. And I just went, I flipped and I called her and she didn't pick up. And so I got really angry and I called the um, crisis line, calling them for help because this was really.
notes at thedailyhelping.com as well as on the Daily Helping app. The Catch a Lift Fund, and that can be found at catchaliftfund.org, was founded in 2010, and it has helped thousands of post-9-11 combat wounded veterans regain their mental and physical health through gym memberships, in-home equipment, and personalized fitness and nutrition programs, as well as a peer support network. This organization provides healthy alternatives through fitness for managing pain, rehabilitating injuries, and coping. to help needy infertile families overcome their infertility. The Kate Foundation is also focused on equipping active duty and veteran servicemen and women with information about different ways to become a parent after infertility, as well as financial support through grants for fertility treatment for active duty and veteran servicemen. The Purdue Entrepreneurship Bootcamp for Veterans with Disabilities, or EBV, VAMP utilizes drama therapy and creative expression to foster interpersonal growth and healthy lifestyles to address social and emotional development, as well as to combat unproductive behaviors. The VAMP Special Project Program for Veterans with PTSD utilizes group process and drama therapy techniques and creative expression to reach therapeutic goals for specific programs. You can learn more about this program at Vital Alternative.